Sisters. Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you today in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let me rush to publicly thank my friend and brother for the invitation first to have been a part of the Thrive Conference this weekend, then to hang around to uh, worship with you today and have the opportunity to preach the Word of God to you today. I know how you feel. I, I wish Eric Mason was preaching today too. <laughs> I totally, totally understand. But uh, you'll benefit in the long run from his wisdom to take a break after this weekend. And I'm grateful that I could fill in to be a help. And it's a joy to be here with you. If you don't mind, I know you just sat down, but would you stand with me? Get your copy of God's Word. And let me pray God's blessings over our time together. And then I want to read to you from the book of Psalms. And after we've prayed and read, you may be seated. Father, thank you for being who you are, our creator, sustainer, and redeemer. You indeed hold the world in your hands. You need nothing, especially nothing from us. You are the source of every good gift and every perfect gift. And we praise you for the indescribable gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. Now, would you cause our worship to go higher as you deepen our understanding of your word? Be our teacher. Help us to lay aside all malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander so that as newborn infants we may crave the pure spiritual milk of your word and grow thereby having tasted of your goodness. Grant me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak the word faithfully and clearly and may Christ be glorified as the word is explained, we pray, amen. amen. Psalm 91 is a passage I would point your attention to. I've been meditating on this psalm personally and it has been feeding my soul. I hope it will be the same for you today. Psalm 91 reads, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Living in the protective custody of God is what Psalm 91 is about. In the Believer's Bible Commentary, William McDonald introduces his comments on Psalm 91 by telling story of a five-year-old boy who lay dying of diphtheria. His mother, not wanting to watch literally her son take his dying breath, turned away, and as she did so, there was a knock at the door. It was her brother-in-law who had come from some distance to tell her not to worry about the boy. He will survive, said the brother-in-law, and the Lord will ultimately save his soul. William McDonald then writes that he was that dying little boy. God indeed did spare his life, and 13 years later, God saved his soul, and he would go on to spend decades as a Christian college president, Bible teacher, and prolific author and Bible commentator. He labels his section in that commentary on Psalm 91 simply, my psalm. He concedes his willingness to share the psalm with the rest of us, but insists that it's his psalm. And when you consider what this text teaches, this is truly the sentiment of all those who know what it means to live under the protective custody of Almighty God. Psalm 91 is one of the so-called orphan psalms. We don't know the author of this psalm. The Septuagint ascribes it to David. Others ascribe it to Moses. But no one knows for sure. Likewise, we do not know the occasion that led to the composition of this psalm. And there's really nothing in the psalm itself that points to its historical background. For that matter, it's even somewhat difficult to ascertain the structure of the psalm, as it is obvious as you work through it that there are multiple speakers in the psalm. But while all of that is true, the fundamental message of Psalm 91 is absolutely clear, and it is this, the Lord will protect the one who trusts in him. This is the message of Psalm 91, the Lord will protect the one who trusts in him. Psalm 91 is a messianic psalm. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Satan himself applies this psalm to the Lord Jesus Christ. While Jesus does not deny that the psalm is about him, he does reject the devil's attempts to lead him astray from the will of God in that temptation. The promises of Psalm 91 indeed are ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ and find their fulfillment in him. But this psalm is good news to everyone 
who trust in God. The Lord will protect the one who trusts in him. It is interesting that Psalm 91 sits alongside Psalm 90 in our Bibles. Psalm 90 is a warning about the reality of death, but Psalm 91 is a promise of watch care for life. Martin Luther said that Psalm 91 is the most distinguished of all of the jewels of the Psalms of consolation, and so it is. This Psalm must not be used for religious superstition, but it is a song of unfailing trust, hope, and care in God. God will protect the one who trusts in him. But what does it mean, friends, to live in the protective custody of the living God? The psalmist teaches us that it is a life of confident trust, a life of total security, and a life of divine Assurance. I wanted you to see that in the psalm itself. Consider first with me a, a life of confident trust. In 1952, an American missionary went to Ecuador to spread the gospel among the natives named Jim Elliott. January 8th, 1956, he was brutally murdered along with four fellow missionaries. He was only 28 years old. He left behind a young wife and a daughter that was not yet a year old. But in 1958, his wife Elizabeth wrote his memoir and she named or titled that book, The Shadow of the Almighty. The title of that book is a clear reference to Psalm 91, verse one, and it helps us to make sense of the message of this psalm. Psalm 91 is no guarantee for, of immunity from trouble in life or even tragedy in death. But this psalm does celebrate what it means to live with confidence in God. Let me be clear before I go any further. Psalm 91 is not teaching that trust in God will keep you from experiencing bad things in life. But what it teaches is that as you trust in God, it will keep you as you go through bad things in life, whatever those things may be. In verse one, then we see the truth of a life of confident trust. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. What, what is this shelter? What is this shadow? It is not a place, it's a person. This sovereign bodyguard is described two ways in verse 1. He is the most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, the living God who is greater than the kings of the earth and the gods of the nations. And not only is he the most high, he is the almighty, the living God who alone possesses omnipotent power. In the very opening statement of the psalm, the writer wants to make it clear that strength and safety and security are not found in self-defense, sinful people, elected officials, military weapons, or anything else. It's only found in the living God. Yes, yes. 
In the opening line of Psalm 90, Moses sings, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Here, the writer declares that this most high, this almighty is for those who trust in him, first of all, a shelter. Psalm 27 verse 5 says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. God is a shelter for those who trust in him and God is a shadow for those who trust in him. Yeah. A human shadow produces fear, but a divine shadow provides comfort that God is near to give relief when we need it. Warren Worsby comments here that the safest place in the whole world is a shadow if it is the shadow of the Almighty. But note the language of verse one. You must dwell in the shelter of the Most High in order to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. In other words, God is a homemaker, not a hotel manager. You, you can't just check in with God on Sunday mornings. You, you must live and abide and dwell with him day by day. James 4 verse 8 bottom lines it this way. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So in verse one, there is the truth of a life of confident trust. But then verse one, that is in verse two, there is the testimony of a life of confident trust. Verse one is a general statement of trust in God. But now verse two is a personal testimony of trust in God. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Friends, this one thing. To be able to talk about God, it's another thing to be able to talk to God. Using intimately personal language here, the psalmist declares his trust in God. Notice the repeated personal pronoun, my, 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 my refuge, my fortress, my God. This is provocative language that virtually overthrows the master-servant relationship between humans and the divine. But the writer is saying that God graciously condescends to become the personal possession of the one who trusts in his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to me, friends. If you belong to God, God belongs to you. And you can declare he is my fortress, my refuge, my God. Friend, is that your testimony today? Have you run to the cross and put your hope for salvation in the blood and righteousness of Christ alone? Can you say to God, you are my God because of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If this is not your testimony, friend, I plead with you today to run to the cross. There is no hope in this world or in the life thereafter from the wrath of God that is to come, except by the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ who died to take our place. Yeah. 
but oh, for the one who trusts in God. No matter what this life may bring, no matter what the service God calls you to, you live in the assurance of his divine protection. In the 15th century, there was a plague in London and a Christian nobleman named Lord Craven decided to flee the city for his country estate. But while his servants were packing him up, he overheard one innocently say to another that I suppose that our Lord is fleeing to the country because his God is just a God in the country and not a God in the city. Rebuked by the innocent statement, he decided to cancel the trip and declared that my God is God in the city and in the country. And he's able to take care of me wherever I am. And he remained and he served those who were affected by the plague and were never, never affected by the plague itself because in a real sense, God can and will be a refuge and a fortress for those who, who trust in him. And so in verses one and two, there, there is a life of confident trust, but notice in verses three through 13, the, the bulk of the psalm teaches us about a life of total security. In verses one and two, the theme of the psalm is stated, the Lord will protect the one who trusts in him. But in verses three through 13, this theme is comprehensively explained. It teaches us that nothing, no one, can harm the one who trusts in God without his permission. And if God permits it, it's just proof that he reigns over it. This, this psalm teaches us that the one that trusts in the Lord is untouchable for two reasons. The first reason is this, the Almighty is watching over you. What does it mean for the Almighty to watch over you? Verse three says, God provides perfect protection. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. The snare of the fowler is the trap of the bird catcher. It is the, the trap, it is the hunter that chases down his prey. It is the plots and plans of, of the enemy. And notice the deadly pestilence represents sickness or disease or, or plague that spreads and touches everyone in its path. And yet the psalmist says, God is able to protect you from enemies and epidemics. How does he do it? Verse four, he will cover you with his pinions, with his outstretched wings, and under his wings you will find refuge. The picture here is of a mother bird who allows her fledglings to play in the field until she sees a threatening storm or an approaching predator and she lifts her wings and the fledglings come for refuge and protection and safety under her wings. The psalmist says, this is our God. Yeah. He is our covering. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus laments, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those that are sent to them. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not permit me. Oh, friend, may it never be said of you that God would, but you won't let him. Wow. 
and trust your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will, says the end of verse four, be your shield and buckler. In fact, verse four says his faithfulness will be a shield and buckler in the time of battle. God provides perfect protection and then God provides perpetual protection. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Be it terror, arrows, pestilence, destruction, the child of God has no reason to fear. This is not, this is not personal courage, it's confident trust. Friends, courage, after all, is just fear that has said its prayers. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The emphasis of verses 5 and 6 are on the, it's on the timing of trouble. Do you see it? Night and day, darkness or noonday, it, it doesn't matter when it is, the Lord provides his watch care for those who trust in him. Psalm 121 verses five and six says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The one who trusts in the Lord is the beneficiary of round the clock protection under the eternal surveillance of almighty God. He provides perfect protection and perpetual protection, but he also provides prevailing protection. Yeah. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Yeah. The psalmist here is picturing a battle or a plague or a storm and thousands die around you, but he says you are Safe. How, how does this happen? Verse 8, which I think is key to understanding the psalm, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. While thousands, he says, ten thousands perish around you, you are safe. And not only are you safe, he says, you sit back as a passive spectator of the judgment of God on the wicked. I think this is the key to the psalm. Here, we are reminded of what the real issue is when it comes to this issue of divine protection. He's saying, you, you don't have to do that. You, you just, um, you don't have to take matters in your own hand, just trust me. In Exodus 14, verse 13, at the banks of the Red Sea, Moses says to the children of Israel, do not fear, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord that he will work for you today. For these Egyptians that you see chasing you, this is the last day you're gonna see them. This is the spirit of the text, but the key here, as I mentioned, is that this is about the recompense of the wicked. Yeah. Psalm, Psalm 91 is not so much about protection from bad circumstances as much as it's about protection from divine judgment. And this ought to concern us all. This, this ought to cause us not to look out the window, but to look in the mirror, because all of us are wicked people on a collision course with the judgment of God, who, whose only hope is that very God. Right. Absolutely. 
the, the idea here is that you, you cannot run from God or hide from God, but here's the good news. You can run to God and you can hide in God. This is the hope of the cross. But God, says Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so the verses in verses 3 through 8 give us the good news that the Almighty is watching over you. That's enough, but it's not all. Not only is the Almighty watching over you, the text says the angels are watching over you. Verses 9 and 10 says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Using language from the previous verses, the psalmist repeats the message of the psalm that the Lord protects the one who trusts in him. But the fact that he repeats the theme does not diminish its significance in any way. One commentator noted here that love loves to repeat itself. Deep affection, like a songbird, only has two or three notes that it sings over and over all the day long. And this is what we find here. The psalmist declares that the, the Almighty is watching over us, but he says he, he is sufficient, but he does not do that alone. He, he has angels watching over us. Yeah. He will command his angels. I'm at verse 11. Concerning you to guard you in all your ways on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. There are many who believe that every person is assigned an individual guardian angel. Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 are given as proof text for this notion, but the psalm here itself does not say that every person has an individual guardian angel as much as it says that God commands his armies of angels to be the believer's bodyguards in the unseen spiritual world. My father, uh, when I was a boy, he could not sing, but he had a song. <laughs> and every now and then I could hear him walking around the house singing all night and all day. The angels are watching over me, my Lord. God sends his angels to watch over us. Psalm 91 is interesting in that it, it's the only passage of scripture quoted in scripture by Satan. In Mark 4, Matthew 4 that is, Matthew 4 verses 5 and 6, Satan uses this passage to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, bidding him to jump down from the pinnacle of the temple, claiming that the Lord will command his angels to guard you in all your ways and they'll hold you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus did not bite the bait. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, Jesus replied, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But that answer teaches us something again about this passage and this whole theme of divine protection for our lives. Jesus reminds us that God protects the one who lives in trusting obedience, not sinful presumption. 
God, God watches over the one who walks according to his will. Let me try it another way. If you jump out there on your own, you may be out there on your own. But, but if you walk according to the commands of God's will, he, he will watch over you every step of the way. Verse number 13 says, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the snake, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample under foot. Lion represents violence. The serpent represents craftiness. But be it open danger or hidden peril, the Lord will watch over the one that walks in his will and according to his commands. You don't have to spend your time preoccupied about whether or not a lion is lurking or paranoid about whether or not a snake is sneaking up. He says, just do what God commands. And the child of God, the servant of God is indestructible until you have accomplished God's will for your life. But finally, in verses 14 through 16, there is not only a life of confident trust and a life of total security, but there is also a life of divine assurance. In these final verses, I mentioned earlier that there are multiple speakers in Psalm 91. And when you get to Psalm 91, verses 14 through 16, it is obvious that there is a new speaker in the psalm, and it is further obvious that the speaker is God. This is the way it ought to be. This is the way it is. God always has the last word. Here, the Lord does not so much speak to the one that trusts in him, but about the one. It's an open statement of divine assurance rooted in the mutual devotion between the Lord and the believer. Consider, first of all, the believer's devotion to the Lord. Verses 14 through 16 are filled with divine promises, but these divine promises are not blanket promises. They, they are promises given to those who are devoted to the Lord. In fact, the qualification for the promises are threefold in verses 14 and 15. He says, first of all, you must love God because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. This, this term love is deep affection. It is zeal. It is great passion. It is it is love that is rooted not in what one says, but in what one does. Notice he says, he holds fast to me in love. This is what it means to love God. Not merely to sing about it, but to hold fast to him. To do whatever it takes to draw near to God. To resist, to fight, to go to war against anything that would draw me away from God. This is the assurance of those who love God and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. But not only must one love God, he says at the bottom of verse 14, you must know God's name. God's name represents his nature, his character, his authority. It is more than a means of identification. To know God's name is to know God himself. It is to be able to speak to God or speak of God in the most intimate of terms as in verse number two, my refuge, my fortress, my God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Listen to me, friends. God does not fulfill his promises for those who know his promises. God fulfills his promises for those who know his name. But look at verse 15. You can love God and know God's name and still live in worry, doubt, and fear if you don't thirdly, says verse 15, call on God. When he calls me, I will answer him. Too many professing believers live like functioning atheists. Profess faith in God, but do not call on him. Here we are reminded that the life of assurance happens after prayer. One must love God and know God's name and call on God. That's the believer's Devotion to God, but more importantly and finally, note the Lord's devotion to the believer. In verses 3, 8, and 11, the writer affirms God's protection of the one who trusts in him by declaring, he will. But in verses 14 through 16, God himself now speaks, and six times in three verses, God says, I will. To cover eight promises. Because he holds fast to me in love, verse 14, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The promises of verses 14 and 15 are obvious. God will deliver, protect, answer, be with, rescue, and honor. What about verse 16? With long life, I will satisfy him. Trusting God is no guarantee of long life. Jesus only lived 33 years, but yet this is the promise of God. And with some obvious exceptions, the promise of God stands true. But the emphasis here is not on the length of life. Listen to the statement again. With long life, I will satisfy him. This is not about how long one lives. This is about the satisfying joy that is only found in the living God. If I may again, words be writes here that a doctor may be able to add years to your life, but only God can add life to your years and make that life worth living. What does it mean for God to satisfy you with long life? I think the end of the psalm answers that. It is for God to show you my salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. Only God saves. All of us live with the same peril. God is holy and we are not. And one day we will have to answer to God for how we have lived our lives. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is nothing in us good to commend to God. There's no good works we can perform to merit God's righteous standard. Our only hope is that God sent his only begotten son into the world who lived a righteous life and died on the cross to take our place and pay the penalty for our sins. This is the satisfying joy of life. It is God's salvation that covers us past, present, and 
future. So much so the Romans 5 can say that having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Salvation covers our past, our present, and our future. So much so that in verses 3 through 5 of Romans 5, Paul can say, and not only that, but we even rejoice in our sufferings. Because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope will never disappoint us because the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is given to us. I grew up in a home of a preacher. My father was the pastor who led me to Christ by preaching of the gospel. My father was the pastor. My mother was the uh, minister of music. I would sit and listen to my daddy preach sitting on the piano stool with my mother while my father taught me the scriptures of the church. My mother taught me the hymns of the church. And she taught me a sing a hymn when I was a boy that I uh, didn't fully understand. And uh, they would sing this hymn and folk would cry out and I didn't get it. I appreciated it more, not only in my own walk, but when I read behind the story of the hymn about D. Stillman Martin, who was an evangelist that lived 100 years ago or better, And his wife, Sevilla, would travel with him, and she would play the piano and sing before he preached. And on one occasion, they hung out at a Bible college to prepare a hymnal for the school to use in their chapel services. And during their extended stay, he had a preaching assignment some distance away from the school, but the morning he got up to depart, his wife was gravely ill, and he didn't want to leave. And she insisted that he go. He was determined to stay and care for his wife. And while they are debating about whether or not he should go preach or not, their young son interrupted the conversation and stuck his nose in grown for business <laughs> and said, Daddy, if it is God's will for you to go preach today, Don't you think he'll take care of mama while you away? Uh, Chastised by his son's question, the boy uh, said this, and the father went to preach, and while he was away, God did take care of mama. Her strength was restored. She cleaned up the house. She cooked dinner for the family, and while that was going on, words began to form in her heart and mind. And when her husband got home, she showed him the words, and he was so eager to sing the words that before he went to bed that night, he set those words to music. And for now, more than 100 years, the the church has sung this hymn based on that little boy's question. And the song simply says, be not dismayed. Whatever be the tide, God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide, God will take care of you. My verse of the hymn says, whatever may be your test, God will take care of you. Lean, weary one, upon his breast, for God will take care of you. This is our hope. In the critical and confusing and controversial days that we live in, for the one who has run run to the cross to trust in Jesus, there is a shelter. There is a shadow. There is safety there. Father, thank you for your word. 
thank you for its hope and its promises and its truth and its wisdom and its authority. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and to live with confident trust that um, wherever you assign us, you will keep us. You are faithful to your children in this life and in the next. And may we live boldly. May we, may we not save our lives and in the process lose it, but may we throw our lives away in your service. And I pray for the one who is here who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Draw to yourself those who should be saved and add to the church those who are being saved, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.